Hello and welcome to episode 186 of AvTalk. I am Ian Pechnik, here as always with... Jason Rabinowitz. Hello, Ian. How are you? I'm doing well, Jason. And you, sir, are coming to us from a very special location today, are you not? I am one of the most special for aviation fans, whether you're a fan of military aviation, commercial aviation, or even aviation that leaves our planet entirely. They've got it all here at the Udvar-Hazy Center, Air and Space Museum, Smithsonian Outpost here at Dulles, I guess. Easily one of the best, if not the best, collection of aircraft for any aviation museum in the world. And I'm here now recording with you. You are where in the museum, sir? So I am in the main hall, nestled underneath the right wing of a Junkers Ju-52, directly facing a Boeing Dash 80. Over to my right, we have Concorde F-BVFA. I think there's a, a Pan Am Clipper over there somewhere. The Enola Gay is over to my left a little bit. That one's a bit imposing. Some history there. I think the space shuttle is behind me somewhere. So if you're looking for anything aviation, this is the place to come to see it. I think the quote, some history there, is probably the understatement of the century. Yeah. There's more aviation and aerospace history packed into that one room than, than I think nearly any other place on Earth. Well, sometimes leaving Earth as they do have an actual space shuttle here. One of the actual ones that went to space, not like our one in the Intrepid in New York Enterprise, which never actually was, never completed its mission into space. They never, it was used as a a glider uh, test aircraft. But if you're looking for anything aviation, you're probably going to find it in this building. Yeah, for sure, for sure. Hopefully, one day we can go together and do a live episode or or something from Udvar Haze or somewhere else, the yeah. deck of the Intrepid or something. Yeah, like and that, if you I hear a little background fun. noise or anything weird, deal with it because that's the natural noise of the world's best aviation museum. I don't know. We'll take it. We'll take it. But we've got a, a good show this week. Lots of stuff happened in the past week. We've got a bunch of updates on things that we've been covering for a while. So let's just dive right into it. At the top of the show, we begin with the story that we've been following for the, the past few weeks now as things have developed and, and undeveloped. And so today, another pilot union came out in favor of a 737 MAX extension, that is ALPA. So they came out saying that a common flight deck across all 737s is more advantageous and more safe than Boeing being forced to equip the MAX 7 and MAX 10 with a uh, crew alerting system. This aligns them with Boeing's arguments as well as the Southwest pilots. Remember the Allied Pilots Association, which is the pilots, the union representing the American Airlines pilots has come out and said, no, we think that these new safety measures should be put into place and no extension should be given. We also talked last week that there is no extension at the moment. The Wicker Amendment that would grant Boeing an extension into 2024 to certify both of these aircraft without the new crew alerting system is not included in the defense bill. That's not to say it won't be included in the defense bill at a later stage or in a different bill that passed before the end of the year. But we're ticking down the clock. It's the 19th of November as we record, and they're running out of bills to put into play because the midterms are coming up. And after that, maybe not all bets are off, but very few bets will be placed. Bets get more precise at that point. But yeah, I would have figured in the last week we would have heard something about that, but it has been eerily quiet in the last seven days on this particular topic. 
Yeah, I think that waiting for something to happen is going to be increasingly fraught because I think Boeing's been counting on this to happen, the extension that is. Because as it sounds, I mean, a few months ago, Boeing CEO Calhoun said, well, we'll just, we'll scrap the plane if if we have to do this. I don't think that was ever a threat they intended to make good on. But as the days tick down towards the end of the year, the options becoming increasingly small. And to put on top of that, the certification of the MAX 7 isn't really proceeding as, as quickly as Boeing would want it to. And certainly the MAX 10 isn't because the MAX 7 needs to be certified first. And the FAA this week came back to Boeing and said, oh, by the way, we need a bunch of stuff that you're supposed to do and send us, and you haven't done it yet. Yeah, forget Boeing wanting this, to, the process not going as fast as Boeing wants to. It seems like the process isn't going as fast as the FAA wants to at this point. I know they're they're taking their time, they're being methodical, they're, they're going slow, but at this point, it seems like even they are annoyed at how slow it is taking Boeing to just get them the proper paperwork so that they can act on it and certify the aircraft. Yeah, I think the tone of the letters from the FAA to Boeing have certainly become more frustrated in the sense that we told you you had to do this. You haven't done it yet. It would behoove you to do all of these things if you want your plane certified at any point in time. And it's becoming increasingly clear that the Boeing just isn't doing it. I don't think it's for a lack of trying. They just, they're just so far behind in their paperwork, in their certification process that arguing for this extension, I mean, almost just becomes the only option they have left. So just a waiting game now. We'll continue to sit here and wait and wait and wait for a bunch of different things to happen before this aircraft ever gets certified. The episode that comes out at the end of the year is normally kind of our recap episode where Jason and I take a little time off. But I have a sneaking suspicion we're going to have maybe half of an episode where we go, well, it's you know December whatever, and they December thirty first at eleven fifty nine p.m. and still haven't had any. I have to go back and check the actual date, but it was the law was passed in in twenty twenty, and it's two years from the enactment of the law, and so the date is December, but it's not the end of the year. It's not December thirty first. It's before the thirty first. So so hopefully that allows us at least an episode of a normal scheduled episode to discuss what they finally come up with at the eleventh hour. Moving on to another story that we've covered a lot more than we really wanted to because nothing has actually happened until they get final approval. But Spirit shareholders today voted in favor of accepting JetBlue's proposal to acquire the airline. Overwhelmingly, I believe, accepted the proposal. Yes, overwhelmingly, we should have. We don't have the exact tally of the votes, but Spirit says they'll they'll have those within a few days. So if it's out, if that actual number is out by Friday when the when the podcast comes out, we'll stick that in the show notes. But they overwhelmingly voted for the JetBlue acquisition, which is not a surprising turn of events. The JetBlue proposal was good for Spirit shareholders. The breakup fee is good for Spirit. Should the DOJ say, "Well, we're not going to approve this." And that's basically the the next big step here is the DOJ looking at this merger with a very critical eye. A few senators have already come out and said, we don't think this should happen. And that's not good as far as the, the merger's prospects. The lawsuit that the DOJ filed against the NEA, which is the Northeast Alliance between JetBlue and American, that 
court case has been proceeding and the trial was last week and all sorts of information came out both about the NEA but also about the knowledge uh, of other airlines by certain airline executives. So that was an interesting one. And then we've got kind of this interior position of the DOJ not really having said anything yet, except they're going to take a close look at it. And so we'll have to see what happens happens next. Yeah. And, and you mentioned some politicians have spoken up against the merger. And that's actually very common to have politicians come out against this or that because they, they want their slice of the pie. When JetBlue and Spirit, if they do inevitably merge, there's going to be a lot of redundancies. Corporate headquarters down in Miramar for for spirit, they're probably not going to need that. But maybe they JetBlue can make some assurances that they'll move some sort of customer service center there or something. Well, so- yeah, JetBlue has said that they would keep Spirit's headquarters, I believe, as a training facility, is what they said. But the the senator that came out it was has, I mean, very, I guess, very little in the way of home turf. It was uh, Senator Elizabeth Warren of Massachusetts. So I, I mean, it, hers was more of a, a competition. An objection based on on competition and consolidation. So it'll be interesting to see what the DOJ comes down, how they come down on it. And I don't think we're going to see anything, you know, within a year. JetBlue and Spirit say they expect to close the deal by the first half of 2024. So there's a long way off. Yeah, it's a waiting game now. The DOJ is, I I know for a fact they are doing their homework because I've actually gotten a request from the DOJ about this already, or not me, but my my company has a pretty funny, actually a couple of weeks ago at this point already. So they are definitely heads down doing their homework well in advance of any decision that might be made. Yeah. So, I mean, it, good to see that they're doing the homework and we'll wait for them to finish their homework and, and see what they say eventually. So last week in Chicago, something not uncommon happened, but what happened afterwards was a bit less common and a bit more concerning. So United Airlines flight 1930 was departing Chicago for Miami. This was a 737-900ER, so extremely long, extremely lazy plane, departing off runway 22 left out of Chicago, departed and struck a bird. That's not the uncommon part. That's the more, more common than one would hope part. Uh, aircraft strike birds on a regular basis. And unfortunately, this aircraft struck a bird and the left engine was damaged. There was video posted, I believe, by passengers on board that saw flame coming out the engine. So also not uncommon. This happens when when engines suffer damage. Sometimes you'll, you'll see a, a engine surge or a compressor solid or something that leads to flames coming out of the engine. The aircraft declared an emergency immediately to say they needed to return, they had lost an engine, and they needed to come back to the airport rather quickly. Yeah, and that's what the report that at least you pointed me to read at first, because you see these all the time, these reports that bird strike, aircraft landed, delay of four hours getting a new aircraft, and that's pretty much all that was in that report. That was all that I saw initially. Looking at the flight in a vacuum, that's what you see. You see an aircraft depart, you see the the engine roll back, and then you see the aircraft land safely, taxi to back to the gate, and a nice delay for folks. And now United Maintenance has some work to do changing out an engine. But the problem here was that the aircraft lost its left engine and had to make a left turn to try and get back to runway 28 center. So it departed 22 left, heading southwest, and made a left-hand turn to come back to runway 28 center facing facing basically due west. 
And as part of that, the aircraft had to make a, a solid left turn. And unfortunately for the aircraft, it didn't have the performance capabilities to make it all the way around, continue that left turn to to a left. And so what it ended up doing was lining up for two, or I'm sorry, not to a left, to eight center, landing to eight center. What it didn't do was line up with two eight center. It lined up with two seven center. So a runway that's north of two eight center on the other side of the terminal complex. And we've got the data, I pulled the granular data for a few of the flights that were impacted by this. And so we'll have a link to that in the show notes that shows a visualization of what we're talking about so that you can follow along with uh, with this and kind of visualize what we're talking about. But what happened was the aircraft didn't announce its intentions or, or didn't let anyone know that they weren't going to be able to make 28 center and were then aiming for 27 center. So there was another flight, United Airlines flight 1815, that was inbound for runway 27 center. That particular aircraft had to conduct evasive maneuvers to ensure that the two aircraft were safely separated. So the two aircraft came vertically within 200 feet of each other. And remember, the minimum is typically 1,000 feet. Well, yes, but, and, and we'll get to the part where I say that all of this was perfectly fine. But let me get there first because I learned a lot this week. So the minimum vertical separation between the two aircraft was 200 feet. The minimum horizontal separation at the time of minimum vertical separation was 1,800 feet. So they were never close enough. There was there was no at no point at which the aircraft were going to come into contact. The 1815 saw 1930 coming at it from below, had seen it the entire time, knew it was happening, and then you know, did what they needed to do to ensure their aircraft stayed safe. They climbed, they turned to the right, and they performed a go-around and, and came back around. 1930, landed safely, taxied to the gate, didn't need any assistance getting off the runway or anything like that. So as Jason mentions, my initial thought was, okay, this is really bad. And so I talked to some air traffic controllers, and what they said is because 1930 was operating uh, as an emergency and was operating with, with visual separation, as long as they maintained separation, what happened was okay. What the air traffic controller said was that the communication between the aircraft and the air traffic controllers is what was most frustrating because the 1930 didn't say anything about not making, they were assigned to eight center, they confirmed to eight center, and then they made the turn for two seven center. And if they had said something that, you know, we can't make two eight center, we're going to seven center, they would have sent all these aircraft around much sooner and it would have been much easier to get the emergency in. There's also the fact that two eight center and two seven center are on the opposite sides of the terminal complex. So you have ARF trucks staging on the south airfield. Oh, that's and not then right. this emergency aircraft <laughs> is coming in on the north airfield. So, I mean, not insurmountable because there are multiple ARF stations at O'Hare, and they, you know, the trucks got to where they needed to be when they needed to be there, and thankfully they weren't needed at all. But it, you know, just some of those considerations thinking about what had happened. So, overall, an incident that wasn't, but some learnings to come of it. And, you know, one of those things where the more you know about it, the less scarier it gets. 
I think is one of the things where where you're just listening to it because one of the things that caught my eye when I pulled up the the recordings, the first thing, not one of the first things, but one of the things that you hear that's kind of shocking is you say you hear one of the controllers say, "Oh, they land, they're they're going to an unexpected runway," which is not something that I think you no, ever want to that's, hear. Uh, I haven't heard that one before. Yeah, so they're like by way of explaining why they were sending these aircraft to go around and not and canceling landing clearances, this particular aircraft landed on an unexpected runway. So just one of those things where the more I learned about it, I was like, okay, this was less bad than kind of a layman's assumption. But there are a number of things that the professionals are sitting back going, okay, this is what we could have done better. And, and I think that's the most important thing because the system worked as it was expected. The controllers got everybody out of the way. They dealt with the emergency. The aircraft landed safely. And then you know now they can say, okay, what could we have done better and, and made sure that the airspace was even cleaner than, than it was. Well, at least they landed on an unexpected runway and an unexpected taxiway or unexpected grassy strip. Or At least they didn't so. go to Pelwaki. Yeah, yeah. So I wonder how long the taxi in time was, though. <laughs> they actually made it in, I guess, fairly quickly by O'Hare standards. So it only took like three or four days to get back to. Oh yeah, no big deal. And you should be a, a simulation, which was pretty cool yeah. of the incident. Are we sharing that? Yeah, yeah. That'll be in the show notes. That particular simulation will be in in the show notes, so people can probably have watched it by now. I should make mention that the show notes are available wherever you get your your podcast. You can usually click more or, or see show notes or things like that. But if you're listening to the podcast on a player that doesn't show the graphics that we post within the show notes, if you go to the Flight Radar 24 blog and click podcast, so fr24.com slash blog and click the podcast tab, you can click on the episode and that will show you kind of the, the full menu of the show notes, graphics, links, everything. If your particular podcast player doesn't include those things, because some of them don't, some of them do. It, it's tough to say what will be shown depending on what podcast you're, what podcast player you're listening on. So this, let's leave this behind for now. We might come back to it in the future if we learn any more. What else do we have? Jason, we've got an interesting thing. This was a, a good article by Ned Russell, who was on the show last week, whose dog Heathrow was on the show last week. Thank you to those who listened. And yeah, we, we got one. Somebody wrote in and said that that was the best guest we've ever had. I love that. That was great. But Ned's article this week is covering the new Open Skies Agreement between the EU and ASEAN, Association of Southeast Asian Nations. And this is an interesting one because it's it's an open skies agreement rather than a bilateral, I guess it's bilateral, but it's not between two countries. It's between two blocks of countries. So 27 members in the EU, 10 in ASEAN, and they are dropping all restrictions on flights between the AU and, and ASEAN so that, long story short, hopefully they can leapfrog the Mideast three. Hey, that's nice. Basically, the idea behind here so that, that you don't have to have total connectivity between – if you want to go between Southeast Asia and the EU, you don't necessarily have to fly between one of the Gulf carriers or with one of the Gulf carriers. Yeah. Interesting time for that to be start up after. I wonder how long this has been in the works for. I bet it was a pre-COVID thing that just got delayed for a few years and now it's finally getting out the door. 
Yeah, I mean, it seems like it would be one of those things that they would want to have in place as soon as possible. But with a dearth of flying, certainly I I probably took a backseat. But yeah, it's really interesting to see what new routes will come out of this. I'm looking forward to seeing some interesting things open up. And it should be good for the ability of, of European carriers that may have been impacted operating to kind of North Asia like Finnair and the likes to maybe say, okay, well, we're going to go south now. So that'll be interesting to see what they end up doing. Yeah. Let's go back to Europe and talk about Jet2's incremental order. So Jet2 had previously ordered a bunch of A321neos. They came back yesterday. None of which have been delivered yet, by the way. No, no. (laughs) Still on order. And they came back yesterday and said that they want 35 A320neos. And when we first talked about Jet2's Airbus order, the whole point of the discussion was that they had been a longtime Boeing customer. So this continues to be a boom for Airbus and their kind of growth of narrow body market share and as such as it is. Yeah, definitely interesting to see an airline like Jet2, which you said is so historically Boeing, favored Boeing aircraft to not only order these Airbus aircraft, but then follow up with an order for more before they even take delivery of their first Airbus aircraft. They must really like the numbers they see on paper. Yeah. That's exactly what it is. And it'll be interesting to see what this opens up for them besides a lot more silver paint. Singapore and Tata are talking about what they're going to do with Vistara and Air India. So now that Tata has the the majority of Air India in its control, the question becomes, what do you do with those airlines? And they're talking about these things up to and including a potential integration of Vistara and Air India. Nope. So Don't that's like where Don't like that's it. where things start to get interesting. Don't like it. Vistara is known as India's domestic kind of premium carrier and internationally they have a few 787s whereas Air India is known as well Air India. I would hate to see Vistara's brand and cabin features kind of merge with the much less well-liked and well-maintained Air India, but maybe they turn Air India around for real this time and it doesn't end up mattering. But I'd like to see some improvement on Air India before they merge it with an actual, you know, nice, successful airline. With a nice, successful airline. Yeah. I I mean, why anyone would want Air India is beyond me. But now that they've got it- Captive audience? I don't know. I guess. But I mean, now that they've got it, they might as well do something with it. So, you know- It'll be interesting to see what they do with this particular grouping and how they deepen the relationship with Singapore Airlines and what happens there. Because if I'm Singapore, I mean, the Vistara thing, I think, is one thing. The Air India thing is like, do you want those two associated with each other? No, if I'm a Singapore passenger and I'm connecting through Star Alliance member or adjacent member, I want to be on Vistara. I don't want to fly Air India. But that's just me. We'll see what changes with Air India's reputation and new owners and operational efficiencies. But right now, I don't like this idea. Not that I've ever been to India or flown either of them. But (laughs) as someone sitting on the sideline from the other side of the world, I don't like it. Fair enough. Fair enough. Okay, let's talk about something that in another week might have been the top of the show. But having had time to ruminate on this and figure its importance. I put it in the the back half of the show because it's about time. So Lufthansa has unveiled its new premium cabin experience or 
at least a teaser of it because we don't know what it's actually going to look like on an airplane. But we've seen pictures. Yeah, we've been seeing them for five years or so now. So, well, no, I mean, that's the know. thing. It's, yeah, it, yes, it looks great. Yes, I'm sure it'll be fine and enjoyable to fly on. But they've been talking about that, you know, this new business class and new experience. And you, like you said, for five years. So anything they come up with at this point is going to be dated by the time it actually flies. Well, yeah, they, years ago, they announced this new business class that would be expected on their 777X which, as we all know, is still not certified, still not delivered, still not flying, that product that they developed for that aircraft is now dated by industry standards. It is not a class-leading product, but they seem to have kind of led with that again, and that is their new business class moving forward. And it's kind of like a lower-end Polaris seat. At the time, when they announced it maybe five, six years ago, it was, you know, it was a good idea, but... Since they announced that, they were granted a fifth star by the pay-to-play kind of scammy Skytrax thing, and it's been so long they've lost that fifth star, so they're no longer five-star Hansa or whatever. Not that it matters, that that's not rooted in reality, but it's been so long they have gone five-star and back to four-star, and there's one piece of good news out of this. Do you know what that one piece of good news is? No, I have no idea. Oh, I thought you knew, but they said they will be installing this on the 747-8i, which means they'll be keeping it in their fleet for years to come. Oh, okay. Yes, that is good news. That I is like good that. news. It was not a foregone conclusion that they would keep that aircraft for very long. That is good news. I had not heard that, and I like that, and I am now happy. I thought you, you might have like got it. a live, happy reaction from me. How dare you, sir? Excellent. So in the back of the plane, some interesting things, nothing groundbreaking, but some interesting tidbits. They're going to basically offer the ability to create your own Eurobiz. So you'll be able to book the middle seat. I guess if you're traveling as a pair and want some extra room, you could book the middle seat and they've got kind of a little table on the armrests that they're showing that seems like a, you know, kind of creates a little Eurobiz type dealy. And then they're also offering what they're calling Sleeper Row 2.0, which is basically Air New Zealand Sky Couch, but don't call it that because I think Air New Zealand trademarked the they Sky sure Couch. Did. But it's the you get a thing that they put there and then you fold up the leg rest and, and get a mattress and you can sleep in an economy seat. Yeah, all in all, I think there are eight distinct different types of seats on that aircraft or seating products. So buying Lufthansa ticket. It's going to be tricky moving forward. Do you want business class or the better business class? Do you want premium economy or do you want sleeper class 2.0 or do you want Eurobiz or do you want an extra seat next to you? Or I don't know. It's a lot to ask passengers to try to figure out. I want the first class seat. Just But it, it, it's not it first is. class. It's business class, but like the bulkhead row is slightly better. I think they're eliminating first class on this, aren't no, they? No, they, no. The, the whole point was they've got first class, the brand oh. new first class concept. Yes, oh, okay. yes, yes, yes. Okay. The Allegris concept includes the refreshed giant first class with taller doors, huge screen. You can have companion dining, all sorts of fun stuff. Then there's the rather confusing sweet-ish business class first row. Then there's the regular business class, and then there's premium economy. Then there's Eurobiz economy on a wide body. That's Eurobiz first class, but not first class in any respects whatsoever. Then there's the economy sleeper. Then there's probably going to be like an economy seat. And then at the back, there's just like you can purchase a stool to sit in the galley. Or some people could just sit in the lavatory because that's where a power outlet is, and that's convenient. There you go. Yeah. Problem solved. And it's a much wider seat. 
Yeah. <laughs> and it flushes. <laughs> so all in all, I think the real takeaway is that this is going to be rather confusing for a very long time while they introduce this. But- I feel like they bit off more than they can chew on this one, but we'll, we'll see. Well, I think if the planes that they ordered were coming as expected, it would have been less of a headache. Mm-hmm. But that's just me. So we'll put a link to the photos in the show notes. They look very nice. Come 2023, we'll see how nice they actually are in the sky. The other bit of interesting news coming out this week is that CFM says it won't develop an engine for the supersonic niche market. Ouch. So CFM is out. Rolls-Royce is out. Pratt & Whitney? Pratt & Whitney is... eh? Bottle bottle rockets? Make them at home? I don't know. So, I mean, Boom says that it's announcing an engine provider by the end of the year. Well, you know what? The SR-71s just over to my left here, they probably still have some engines in it that they could borrow from that. I don't know. I I could go (laughs) ask somebody. Can we borrow those? It's like the the fastest airplane ever, so I'll just go over there and take one? I don't know. That works. I like it. I mean, at yeah, well, uh, you got nothing. Why not? You got nothing. Why not? I got nothing. There's no response nothing. to that. There certainly is not. Okay, let's close out the show with some good stuff. We've got Virgin Atlantic taking delivery of its first A330 Neo. They name all their aircraft and this particular aircraft, which is registered GVJAZ, VJAZ, is named after legend Billy Holiday. So that that was a cool one that happened on Saturday up from Toulouse. That was fun. We did an integrated live stream with Big Jet TV. They had coverage from Toulouse and from London Heathrow. So if you missed that, you can kind of go back and, and check that out. That was a lot of fun to work with those folks. And hopefully we'll do that again in the future for some other special stuff. And then this one caught me rather by surprise. Northern Pacific Airways has conducted its first flight to the South Pacific. Oh, yeah. That's their way to the South Pacific. Yep. Where exactly? Where exactly? So they've begun this multi-stage tour of, well, the the South Pacific, really. (laughs) So yeah, they're flying. So they left Ontario, California. They're conducting a four-city multi-state demonstration beginning in California. Demonstration of of what? A used 757. I've seen it. I've seen this show before. They've flown to Hawaii yesterday. Later today, they leave for the Northern Marianas Islands, and then they will fly up to Anchorage. So enjoy, I mean, they they can go about their normal Northern Pacific plan now. Japan has reopened. That was their target market, US to Japan via Anchorage. Japan's open now. Go. What are you waiting for? I don't know. You can't answer that, but- but these aircraft <laughs> weren't ETOPS, or they weren't ETOPS certified yet, right? Has that changed? I don't believe it has. So how'd they get to Hawaii? I mean, I haven't heard anything. Maybe, I, yeah, I don't know. Maybe because it's a tour of some kind. That they're, okay. they're, I mean, they're not, obviously not carrying passengers, so, so I don't know if they've gotten special dispensation, well, or perhaps they've secured ETOPS and didn't tell anybody. Maybe, but if anyone from Northern Pacific is listening, I'm ready to go to Japan. You have my number. <laughs> they have everybody's number. And then, so last but certainly not least, we've gotten a bunch of emails uh-oh. from last week's show. No, not uh-oh. A bunch of emails from last week's show. Most of them were about the dog. And then a few of them were about our comments based on the lawyer who was checking a bag and our comments disparaging that practice by said lawyer. 
And Wait, disparaging checking a bag. Well, yeah. When when we talked about, I was kind of making fun of that person who said like, oh, they have they have hacks for checking a bag. And my whole point was, if you're a lawyer traveling six months out of the year, what are you doing checking a bag? Valid point. Stand by it. And, and you, I, I still stand by it. But one of the emails that we got was a very, very thorough kind of, well, not all the time. And here's why. Because as listeners of the podcast know, Jason and I are both US-based. Jason and I have both traveled extensively, but our frame of reference for most travel is United States-based stuff. Trains, boo, trains better everywhere else. Airlines, yay, sometimes. But the one thing that airlines in the US have in relation to airlines everywhere else, for good or for ill, is a larger sized carry-on bag limit. Carriers outside of the US, most of them have a requirement that a smaller bag is necessary to bring onto the plane. And so this particular listener wrote in and was like, yeah, I would love to not have to check a bag. But when you think about the size and all of the things that you need to carry in those bags on a trip that's longer than a week or something like that, it ends up making sense checking a bag or especially if you have some things in your bag that you can't necessarily bring you know, inside the cabin of the aircraft. Another email mentions that they have seen people who are, you know, traveling salespeople who do a lot of things where they can't bring whatever they're selling on board the aircraft, but can check that bag. Their example was a knife salesperson. Obviously, you can't bring a bag full yeah, of knives. That, that's a bit of a, a specialized use case there. I sure, think the, sure. But yeah, the general sentiment from us is still valid. If you can avoid checking a bag at all costs, do that, especially in Europe right now with the ground handling situation where. Even if your bag does make it, you're probably going to stand at the bag claim carousel waiting 40, 60 minutes for the thing. I think our advice still stands. Though I will concede that as a U.S. passenger, even when I do connect to an intra-European flight, I'm doing that as a connecting passenger and they look the other way on the large American-style bags. And I've never been bothered about that. So I didn't even really think that as an intra-EU passenger without connecting flights, Maybe they're a little more harsh on the bag size. Yeah. So all in all, I appreciated folks writing in and giving us that perspective because we do miss things from time to time. And by what I mean from time to time is all the time. We miss things all the time. But that's what you great listeners are for and can email us at podcast at fr24.com with any and all of your feedback, comments, questions, what you like about the show, what you don't like about the show, suggestions for future topics, people that we should talk to, things we should cover. We want to hear from you. And with that, I will say thank you for listening to episode 186 of AvTalk. I am Ian Pechnik, here as always with Jason Rabinowitz. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.